and welcome to this week's Tez Effie podcast. My name is Kate Parker and I'm here with Julia Balgatai. Hello. Hello there. How are you this week? I'm all right. The sun is shining in Scotland. Oh, that makes a difference. It's not shining in London. <laughs> well, you can't have it all. <laughs> Swapped over. <laughs> I'll send it back down soon. Please do. And so this week you had um, a very exciting interview with the new... Um, Minister for Higher Education, Further Education, Youth, Employment and Training of Scotland, Jamie Hepburn. He was appointed a few weeks ago, wasn't it? Yeah, it was uh, just after the election in May he took over. So he's not a completely new face to the sector. He was before that responsible for apprenticeships. So the way it worked in Scotland until this latest reshuffle was that there was a separate minister who was in charge of aspects of employment and then apprenticeships whereas further education and higher education and science sat with Richard Lockhead so post the election uh, that has now been brought together and Jamie Hepburn is now responsible for all aspects of that so people in the sector will already know a little bit about him but hopefully the interview will tell them a few things that maybe they didn't know and also set out sort of some initial ideas of where he sees the uh, FE sector moving to in future so we've got a little bit of a clip of that for you now is this is is sort of particularly vocational education and technical education something that you have a a kind of natural interest in i mean like most people in parliament you haven't come the sort of college yeah i I mean well candidly um you know it's something i became more aware of and alert to when i became the minister for employability and training now that's not to say you're not aware of um, uh, vocational education, vocational training, but the breadth of it is something I most people aren't aware of. The range of different opportunities through uh, apprenticeships uh, has been the most obvious example of vocational training. Um, it's quite extraordinary, uh, and I think people probably tend to think of it in terms of the, industri- the traditional trades, which of course are undoubtedly part of, of that, but you can do it across a whole range of, of subject matter um, or career uh, opportunities. Um, you know, accountancy uh, is uh, one uh, example. I think people probably don't conventionally think of that you could do as an apprenticeship. Although if you actually look back in uh, the mess of time, it wasn't that uncommon a, a way of people getting into that interest. So there's a degree of back to the future with uh, these these things. But yes, I have a great interest in it. I think it's it's it can be a life changing thing for for folk. Um, uh, I've seen that with many apprentices that I've met uh, who you know you've got to be cautious as well because I've met many apprentices that you know, were straight A students could have gone to university, but decided actually they preferred to go into an apprenticeship. But there's no denying there's also some people who maybe didn't have a great first experience of education um, whilst at school, who find that form of uh, practical application of, of training, hands-on skill set, that you know, very engages them. And, yeah, it's 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 been a transformative experience for them. I've seen that many many times. Well, that all sounds really interesting, and good luck to Jamie in his new role. And 
We've also um, this week published a um, major report on apprenticeships and young disadvantaged people. Um, the National Foundation for Education Research shared this report with us and it's nothing It's nothing we haven't heard before, but I think it is worth highlighting and pressing the point. So they found that um, the pre-pandemic apprenticeship forms, so things like the 20% off the job training, um, the level two maths and English, the endpoint assessment, um, and obviously the levy have all had a detrimental um, impact on young disadvantaged people and their access to apprenticeships. Um, and obviously we know that during the past two years, apprenticeships have been particularly disadvantaged by the pandemic and they show data that shows that of those dis- of those disadvantaged by the pandemic, it's the young disadvantaged learners that have been affected the most. Um, they call for a number of recommendations and we have got a little clip for you here with Jenna Julius who is the senior economist at NFER and she authored the report and she has some really fascinating insights so here she is. So Jenna do you want to just start us off and tell us why did you conduct the research in this area and what did you find? So we know that young people, uh, particularly those from the most disadvantaged backgrounds, have been particularly impacted by the pandemic, whether they've been in education or in employment. So apprenticeships, um, which are paid jobs incorporating both on and off the job training, um, are a key way in which we can support young people to enter into the labour market and progress into their careers. Um, Despite this, even before the pandemic hit, we saw that there had been a substantial decline in the number of apprenticeships started by young people um, following a number of reforms to the apprenticeship system, particularly in 2016-17. And we know that this trend has only been accelerated uh, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, So our research looked to understand the impact of these recent reforms, both before and during the COVID-19 pandemic, to understand which groups have been impacted and Um, what this means for the recovery of apprenticeship opportunities as we begin to emerge from the pandemic in order to make sure that uh, as the economy recovers, there are opportunities for young people. We found that in the pre-pandemic period, while apprenticeship starts were declining across the board, uh, young people and those from disadvantaged backgrounds were most affected by recent apprenticeship reforms. Um, So to illustrate this, um, we know that the number of apprenticeships started in the most 20, in the 20% most deprived areas fell by 30% compared to just 3% in the um, 20% least deprived areas. And while um, the latest data suggests that there has been some recovery in apprenticeship starts, uh, the number of apprenticeships started, particularly among young people, are far below their pre-pandemic levels. And it's quite clear that more action is needed to ensure um, that there is a recovery in, in apprenticeship starts um, so that we can ensure opportunities for young people who have already been particularly impacted by the pandemic as we emerge, um, hopefully, from COVID-19. Why is it so important that apprenticeships are available to young disadvantaged students? You know, you talk about the fact that obviously we know that the intermediate starts have declined and like the higher degree apprenticeships have risen and that clearly, you know, it's the young disadvantaged students who tend to take those immediate level ones. But why is it so important that, you know, they have access to them in the first place? Are apprenticeships a really good social mobility tool? 
Yes, they are. So for one thing, apprenticeships are associated with really strong labour market returns. So uh, a recent Social Mobility Commission study found that disadvantaged young people doing intermediate level apprenticeships earn on average 10% more um, by um, age 28 compared to, a young, uh, compared to a young person doing a comparable level qualification. Um, we also know that apprenticeships help um, disadvantaged young people close the earnings gaps with, them, with their more affluent counterparts. Um, apprenticeships are also a particularly attractive route for young people from disadvantaged backgrounds who might not otherwise um, be able to afford to um, keep uh, to stay in training um, and because apprenticeships allow young people to earn while they are studying um, they allow young people who might not otherwise be able to access opportunities uh, to continue uh, their training. And so what, what sort of things what sort of actions would would you like the government to take to kind of resolve all of these issues? So uh, while um, our report outlines a number of recommendations a particularly important priority um, in our view, is for the government to redesign the current apprenticeship funding system in order to ensure that it meets the needs of SME employers. So the way in which the current funding system is designed is such that whenever there is a risk that the apprenticeship budget is overspent, um, it is funding for SME apprenticeships, which ends up getting cut. So we saw this in the pre-pandemic period where um, the government um, introduced a cap of a maximum of three apprenticeship starts per SME employer started through the digital apprenticeship service when there were concerns that the apprenticeship budget might be overspent. Um, now, because of the pandemic, that cap uh, was raised to 10 apprenticeship starts, um, but it's inevitable that as the number of apprenticeship starts recovers, as the economy reopens, that the government are again going to be in a position that they need to cap the number of apprenticeship starts in SMEs. And the consequence of that is not only that it hits small and medium-sized businesses, but that these businesses who hire a disproportionate number of young and disadvantaged apprentices, um, it means that there's then less opportunities for these groups. And then I know another one that um, is talked about in the report is to kind of um, ring fence, if you like, funding for 16 to 18 year old apprenticeships. <clears throat> so why, why do you think that's important to do and kind of have them separate to the you know, main apprenticeship budget? So we know that the way the current apprenticeship system is working is effectively what's happening is apprenticeships for young people and lower level apprenticeships are being traded off over these higher level apprenticeships. And while it's really important that we have higher level apprenticeships in the system to support progression of young people through apprenticeships, um, it's important that that's not happening at the expense of um, apprenticeships for young people. So um, our recommendation is to separate and protect the apprenticeship budget for young people because that ensures that um, the costs and the benefits of these qualifications are traded off against the qualifications that these young people would otherwise be doing rather than being traded off against higher level qualifications which are the kind of potential progression routes for these young people. We try to focus on things that would be kind of wouldn't come with a large price tag. So revisiting how the apprenticeship funding system um, is working for SMEs um, is a way in which we could support 
uh, more apprenticeship opportunities in SMEs and for young people without potentially the costs of, say, Robert Health and suggestion of funding the wage costs of um, apprentices and SMEs, which um, while would have the kind of similar effects would obviously be much more expensive. It will be interesting to see whether the government, you know, sits up and pays attention to this. They are, they do seem to be more active on FE and skills now, don't they? Yeah, and they, I, I think they're aware that there is a real issue with apprenticeships and a take up of apprenticeships and, um, you know, how it has become sort of very much focused on a specific group of society that is benefiting from apprenticeships, whereas those that maybe would, in the end, benefit the most, you know, the young disadvantaged who don't have 15 other routes open to them at this point and would really also benefit from earning while they're learning very often are excluded from this at this point and so I think there is an awareness of that the question is you know with everything else going on how much of a focus is this going to be over the coming months Um, and also what changes can and should be made to to improve this I mean we heard at ALP conference not long ago you know calls for from people saying please don't start again from scratch you know, please give this time to embed a bit. That changes are needed, more flexibility is needed. But, you know, just please don't scrap the whole thing again and, and start again. Which you can understand, you know, if, you, if you've been trying to get your head around this for the last few years and uh, reforms are just bedding in, then obviously you don't want to then have to start all over again. But some changes are probably needed and it'll be interesting to see if, if the government... Any of them. Yeah, there seems to be a few voices calling for particular things around SMEs. Robert Health and uh, ALP called for um, well, he called for the government to um, pay for all of the training and wages um, of apprenticeships at SMEs at least for the first year. And in NFER's report, as Jenna says, they're calling for funding for sixteen to eighteen year old apprenticeships to be separated and protected, um, as well as redesigning the funding system to help. SME employers so I think that there are some big voices out there calling for specific things around SME and young people so let's see if the government listen or not indeed and another thing that they well it's kind of along the same thread but that I think hopefully they will listen to the um, voices of will be the lords and they had their second reading of the skills and post-16 education bill this week oh, and they boy, had a lot they. to say <laughs> I mean, I, wow. I said on Twitter earlier in the week that I reckon that's probably the longest thread we've ever done. Uh, 50 speakers, six hours of debate. It was uh, quite something, wasn't it? Oh, and it, it's just, I mean, I've obviously only been covering FE for two years, but I remember there being a similar debate, I think that um, George Ryan at the time covered, and he was saying, I think that must have been, I think it was like four hours or something, and he was saying, this is amazing, this is the most amount of speakers ever, FE's really, you know, being debated, and now, like, two years later... And it's even longer and there's even more people speaking on it. So that's really good. I think it's good that so many want to share their opinions. And it was, and you know, they they had opinions. This is maybe an obvious thing to say, but they actually really all made points. You know, they had things to say. People were being reined in for speaking longer than I think the six minutes that they were, that they were allocated. There were some really uh, good interventions being made. Lots of amendments being talked about already that people are keen to make to the bill. It was also quite clear, I think, that some of the big sector organisations had quite extensively briefed peers beforehand. You know, the likes of AOC, FAB uh, were mentioned a few times. So I think a lot of work had been done in the background to make sure that um, the Lords knew what points to make. But there was certainly no shortage of opinions. And 
it'll be really interesting to see what amendments to the bill are made as it moves now into committee stages. Yeah, and, you know, they talked about all sorts of things, but I think some of the key... Well, I would say the two most um, common things that came up were um, the adult maintenance support, um, many of them saying that it's great with a lifelong learning loan entitlement, um, but if you don't give adults the maintenance loan to go alongside that, many of them will be shut out, and the rules about universal credit are kind of tied into their many calling for reform on that, which we know AAC did a few weeks ago. Um, And then also stuff around the lifetime skills guarantee saying, you know, not only does it not include courses on the creative arts, which Joe Johnson raised, um, but also that it means that for for adults that are level two or lower, they can't access this. And they were kind of it was I would say actually adult education was probably the most common thing that came up again and again and again in their concerns yeah i think there were those i think that those were definitely the the sort of big common themes and then you know the kind of big hitters on adult education you know lord blunkett being one of them you know you would expect him to make those points but there were some others that you know you hear from less commonly that were also really strong on on that on on the support that adults need to return to learning later on in life yeah, and so we've got a clip here for you from Baroness Burbridge, who introduced the bill. So she is the Parli- Parliamentary Under Secretary of State for the Department of Education, and this is her at the very beginning um, setting out what, what's in the bill and, and what the government wants to do. Hybrid sitting of the House will now resume. I ask members to respect social distancing. Second reading of the Skill and Post 16 Education Bill, I call Baroness Berridge. My Lords, I'd first like to thank Noble Lords who contributed to the debate following Her Majesty's gracious speech when we first discussed this bill. I'd also like to thank Noble Lords who attended recent briefing with department, uh, departmental ministers. And for the benefit of Noble Lords contributing remotely, I would like to note that the Parliamentary Under Secretary of State for Apprenticeship and Skills um, is physically present with us in the chamber today. I also look forward to hearing the maiden speech of the Noble Lady Baroness Black of Stroom. And I do uh, uh, say that it's wonderful to see the priority given to the bill by the noble lady, Lady Wilcox, who's speaking today as it is her birthday. I'm glad to see there is a common desire to look at skills reform and further education. And I'm looking forward to the debate we shall share. And I welcome the scrutiny that the bill will be placed under. We can all agree that skills and post-16 education needs its moment in the spotlight both here in Parliament and in communities across the country. We talk about the forgotten 50% of people who don't go to university. Well, today we are giving this policy and the people it affects the attention they deserve. We can see today the vast challenges facing the nation. COVID-19 has significantly impacted the economy and shown us how urgently we need a resilient, highly skilled workforce. We all see the clock ticking towards 2050 when we have committed to reaching net zero carbon emissions and we are all well aware of our need to succeed as an independent trading nation following our departure from the European Union. This is also the perfect opportunity to think about what constitutes our nation. Is it one big city or a couple of big cities? No, it is a diverse set of communities, families and individuals with different ambitions and potential. This means we need to match opportunities with a talent that we know can be found across the country. We need to ensure that people can succeed without feeling like they have to move to one of the big cities. This past year's extraordinary transition to flexible working for many has only proved this further. 
So we have a duty to make sure that the skills provision that is offered in people's hometowns meets their needs and ambitions and that of employers, so everyone has the opportunity to realise their full potential and find success wherever they live and whatever their background. My Lords, the evidence is clear. We have a problem in the balance of education. Only 4% of young people achieve a qualification at higher technical level by the age of 25, compared to a third who get a degree or above. And yet 34% of working-age graduates are not in high-skilled employment. No wonder more parents would now prefer their child to gain a vocational qualification than a degree. University is a great option for some, but it isn't the best option for everyone, and it shouldn't be seen as the only pathway to success. My honourable friend, the Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Apprenticeship and Skills, often tells me how inspired she is when she hears from learners on her many visits to colleges and further education institutions, people who have found their vocation and their way of success through technical education. Philip August 2018 review of post-18 education and funding made the call for parity of esteem between further and higher education, and I want to take this moment to offer my congratulations uh, for his recent knighthood in the Queen's Birthday Honours List. The review set out the case very clearly for genuine choice for everyone beyond the fantastic opportunities offered through our world-class university system, and I also want to pay tribute to the noble lady, Lady Wolfe, who served on the panel of the review. The government has listened to this call. The Skills for Jobs white paper published earlier this year set out our vision to reform post-16 education and training. We will prioritise flexibility, accountability and quality. We'll put employers at the heart of the system, building on what we have done with apprenticeships and T-levels so that individuals can know what their qualification leads to and employers can have confidence in them. And given that 80% of the workforce of 2030 are already in work today, it's essential that we have a flexible system for adult retraining which supports people as they progress their careers. We want these reforms to work for everyone. That's why we're working with uh, noble lords, including the noble lord, Lord Addington, to ensure that we support those with special educational needs to access the improved skills, training and education our reforms aim to deliver. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the noble lord for his dedication, challenge and advocacy on this issue, as well as our other FE ambassadors who brought the breadth of knowledge and enthusiasm to our discussions. The chair of the Education Select Committee, the Right Honourable Robert Halfen, called the White Paper a sea change. The Association of Colleges noted it, and I quote, recognises the vital role that colleges and further education will play in levelling up for people and places whilst tackling long-standing concerns about stagnating productivity. And employers such as the co-op welcome the reforms. We know that to deliver them successfully also requires funding, so that's why we've backed the white paper with £2.5 million for a national skills fund, £1.5 million to improve the college estate and £650 million extra into FE for 16- to 19-year-olds. The White Paper sets out a comprehensive programme for reform, and this bill before us will provide the necessary statutory underpinning for change. My Lords, the bill itself is divided into three sections that support the principles of the White Paper. First, it aims to provide a framework for ensuring that skills and post-16 education lead people towards a great job. That's why we're creating a statutory underpinning for local skills improvement plans, which we will shortly be trailblazing in some local areas. 
by putting employers and their representative bodies at the heart of the post-16 skills system, we're focusing on meeting local skills gaps and prioritising training in growth sectors. This will ensure employers have the skills they need to drive growth in local areas, will support opportunities for learners to get good jobs, and it will help the existing workforce to retrain. This will help us get rid of the idea that career success can only be found in a big city. Relevant providers will need to have regard to these plans when considering their technical education and training offer. These changes will also be supported by a new duty on further education institutions to review their provision to ensure it meets local needs. In addition, the Bill supports the provision of the advanced technical and higher education skills the country needs by creating a strong link to employer-led standards. The Bill will reform the technical education system so that it is high quality, stable and coherent. It does this by giving the Institute of Apprenticeships and Technical Education IFAT, powers to approve new categories of technical qualifications, simplifying a system where there are currently over 12,000 qualifications. The Bill also gives a statutory footing to a collaborative relationship between the Institute and Ofqual. Perhaps, my Lords, the major plank of the Bill is that it supports the introduction of the lifelong loan entitlement as part of a flexible lifetime skills guarantee. This measure, which will be rolled out from 2025, will give all adults access to the equivalent of four years of student loans for higher-level study at levels four to six. The loans will be available to, to be used flexibly, full-time or part-time, for modules of full qualifications, for provisions in colleges or universities. At the moment, maximum funding amounts for, fun for, maximum amounts for funding are set in relation to the academic year. The Bill will make clear that maximum loan amounts can be set in other ways. The Government will consult on the details of the lifelong loan entitlement, including on how best to support students with living costs of studies and whether equivalent and lower qualifications restrictions should be amended to support retraining and stimulate provision. The ambition is to replace the two existing systems that offer government finance loans to learners studying at levels four to six with a single LLE system. These two existing systems are, of course, the higher education student finance and the advanced learner loans, which provide funding for different types of courses. The lifelong loan entitlement aims to create a simpler and clearer system, but it will require extensive operational changes to the student finance system and the types of course available, which is why it will be rolled out from 2025. But it is the step change in the system that will provide people the opportunity to upskill, retrain and reskill, providing the alternative to the notion that a standard three-year degree is the only route to success, giving people the flexibility to change their future. Of course, it is also important and my Lords, to ensure there is sufficient provision for lower-level qualifications. That is why, separate to this Bill, the Government's adult education budget will continue to fully fund courses in English and Maths, up to and including Level 2 for adults who haven't previously attained a GCSEC or in New Currency 4. The National Skills Fund funds adults to complete their first Level 3 qualification alongside the new Skills Boot Camps. These reforms mean very little if education or training provision is not of the highest quality. That's why the second part of the Bill proposes powers to make regulations to improve and secure the quality of FE initial teacher training by shaping the market for that provision. But this power will only be used if these improvements cannot be achieved through working collaboratively with the sector. 
The Bill will also make clear that the Office for Students has the ability to make assessments by reference to absolute student outcomes. This will give confidence that the same standard uh, can be applied across all higher education providers and for all students, whilst continuing to take into account the context and individual circumstances. My Lords, the third part of the Bill aims to ensure that there are sufficient protections in place for learners. It will allow the Government to introduce a list of post-16 educational training providers. To be on the list, providers will need to meet conditions that are aimed at protecting learners against the negative impacts of potential provider failure. This issue, which relates particularly to independent training providers, was raised in your Lordship's House, I believe, during the passage of the Technical and Further Education Act in 2017. I'm glad to be able to bring a solution to this issue back to the House today. This section of the Bill also gives powers to the Secretary of State, who has now taken his place on the steps of the throne as I began, to intervene in the statutory further education sector where local needs are not being met, or to direct mergers or structural change where that is the best way to secure improvement. Alongside the final part of the Bill, it will improve the efficiency of the FE insolvency regime. One of the strengths of the FE market is the flexibility of its provider base. These measures will give the impetus for this flexibility to be used to protect learners and provide education and training that is clear in its path towards the labour market. My Lords, I am delighted that this Bill is before us today. We have the opportunity to begin the process of transforming opportunities for young people and adults. Events of the last year have shown us how important skills and further education will be to our recovery as both an economy and as a nation. And as noble laws have often said, this has been the Cinderella of the sector for too long. This reform is long overdue, but it's only one step on a longer journey. And if you do want to catch up on the full um, debate, then you can. It's on parliament.tv. So you, if you've got a spare six hours, why not this weekend go and spend your time watching that? Well, if the weather stays bad in London, that might not be a bad way to but, spend a Saturday. If you don't want to do that, however... You can just spare a few minutes and read uh, Kate and my excellent summary of the same debate, which has a sort of key quote from every single one of the peers that spoke. You're so, welcome. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so absolutely do that if you don't have six hours to spare. Yes, and you were really interested to see where this will go as it makes its way through Parliament, and obviously we'll bring you all the news as it does. Um, So thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful weekend and we'll speak to you soon. Speak to you soon.